calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week, my colleague Anastasia Diakaki is in the host seat. She sat down with Yanis Varoufakis to talk about the lessons he learned during his tenure as Minister of Finance of Greece and how they led to his co-founding of DM25, the pan-European movement for the democratization of Europe. Yanis shares his views on the relationship between politics and the investment industry and the role of capital markets within society. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Hello, Yanni Varoufakis. Hello, Anastasia. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Great pleasure. Let's start our conversation by going back in time a little bit and talking about your time as the finance minister of Greece. <laughs> surprise, I know. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so now that you've had some time to reflect on, um, on the, that time, that, that period, and uh, you've written about it and you've thought about it, you've talked about it, what would you say is um, the biggest impact that you made a couple of uh, small contributions. The first one, uh, a large uh, majority of Europeans now know things they didn't know before about governance or ill governance of the Eurozone. For instance, no one knew, and I don't think I even knew before my stint, that uh, the Eurogroup, which makes all the important decisions for the Eurozone, and indeed for the European Union more generally, since the Euro is the backbone of the EU, um, is um, an informal group that has no rules, uh, no minutes, completely opaque. All decisions are being made, not even in there, in the corridors outside of the Eurogroup. And these are decisions that have a major impact on the life of people. Uh, I, I think that just, just the mere fact that Europeans know this now um, is substantial. Uh, secondly, the result of um, my opposition, not my opposition, our opposition, and the Greek people's opposition to the, to the bailout has been that I think this was the last bailout ever in the history of the Eurozone. They're not going to try this again, at least not in a formalized Troika uh, based uh, procedural manner. Uh, what we now have is a permanent. Uh, concealment of uh, bankruptcies through the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank will increasingly just buy all sorts of bad debt, whether it's private or public, without uh, the semblance of uh, some kind of uh, institutionalized process, which is a good thing and a terrible thing at the same time. Yes, I was going to say, is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing in the sense that you don't... Look, this Troika process, whereby you would have a cabal of low-ranking officials without any kind of democratic legitimacy mm. storming into ministries and dictating policy to ministers 
whether that was in Ireland, in Portugal, in Italy, in Spain, in, in Greece, that um, was a major trauma for um, the whole facade of democratic politics. So it's a good thing that this is, this is not going to happen again. Yes. Uh, but it's also a terrible thing because they have not dealt with the underlying causes. They have not discovered a mechanism that actually um, deals with the issue. Uh, what they're doing is, is a bit like um, uh, substandard medical doctors uh, pumping a, a cancer patient with cortisone. Mm -hmm. That's what QE is. It makes the patient feel a little bit better and looking a bit perkier, but it doesn't do anything for the tumor. So that's where we are now. And do you think that Europe as a whole is moving away from democracy? Ah, democracy is a very interesting concept, isn't it? Um, the, the problem has always been that there, there is a major disconnect between the nation state and the European Union. Nation states, as a result of centuries of struggles in Europe, have become democratized. We have democratic process, even in Greece, during the, the worst part, which continues from my perspective, of the crisis, uh, even when we had the Troika dictating all the policies. Uh, we still had the democratic process with the parliament. We, we had liberal democracy in action. The, however, the problem is that uh, we shifted all the important decisions, not just in Greece, but even from Germany, mm. into a democracy-free zone, Brussels. Yes. Which was, it's not just that there's a democratic deficit in, in, in the European Union's heart and kernel. Uh, it was designed to be a democracy-free zone. Uh, this intergovernmental structure, if you think of it, is like a cartel, the purpose of which is to keep the demos out. So many Europeans, I think, erroneously believe that uh, democracy has faded, it's in crisis in the European Union. No, no, no. It, it was designed out of the European Union. And everything that has been done uh, in the democratic um, um, communication has been a fig leaf. So the European Union uh, Parliament was created, the European Parliament, as a fig leaf to cover up for the fact that there is no European Parliament, really. Uh, the, the, the process of um, uh, voting in the European Union Council, we know that nobody really votes in the European Union Council. Or the, you know, the Lisbon Treaty, qualified voting and that, it's never happened. It's always been a discussion behind closed doors with uh, Berlin and Paris in the end agreeing between them and imposing everything upon everyone else. Mm. And how does that tie into what you do now with the M25? Was that a response to exactly this? Precisely. Uh, after our defeat in 2015, uh, after the extending and pretending continued, and uh, you know, the Greek people's referendum verdict was thrown under a bus on the night when it was delivered, uh, I ha speaking personally, I, I had a trilemma. Um, stay at home and lick my wounds or write my book, and, you know, have a good time <laughs> on my own. Um, start a political party in Greece to react to what was going on in there. Neither of those options appealed. Um, and then there was a third option, which was a, a crazy option. I'm talking you know, just complete madness. Uh, and that is to take a principled position and say, look, we have a European crisis. It's a crisis of democracy, it's a crisis of the European economy, of macroeconomic imbalances, of stagnation, of austerity, of 
you know, a banking system that is kaput. Mm. Uh, so maybe we need a European solution, which is not going to come from national parliaments, not going to come from Brussels, not going to come from the European Central Bank, because they are part of the problem. So maybe we need a pan-European political party or movement. So how about trying to create one, which is, of course, total madness. But it, it's been fun <laughs> trying. And what are you... Um... What, what are you working on now with the M55? Same thing, same thing. Yes. I mean, we, um, I've just come here to Madrid from Prague. Uh, we had our um, um, Pan-European Assembly, that's the M25. Uh, we had 300 delegates from all over Europe. Uh, and we are rebuilding our agenda for a Green New Deal for Europe, um, supplementing it with uh, uh, a campaign for drafting a European democratic constitution as an exercise. Mm. So that we, under, we ourselves answer the question, so what kind of Europe do we want? What kind of governance do we want? If we don't like intergovernmental structures, and we don't, because we think that they're profoundly undemocratic, what would we want instead? Do we want a federation? What kind of constitution would we draft? So, you know, we, we're a small movement. We have 120,000 activists across Europe. But firstly, it's fun. Yes. And secondly, we have had some impact. Um, you know, we, we ran in the European Parliament election. We didn't elect anyone, but we got one and a half million votes. Uh, total budget was 80,000 euros. So, yeah, if you look at it from an input out, from an economic point of view, financial point of view, an accounting point of view, to, to gather one and a half million votes when you have um, 80,000 euros of, of a budget shows that something is happening. And we've influenced other people. Yes. Uh, we've influenced the Greens. Uh, they've taken... Uh, some of ideas from the Green New Deal. We've influenced Emmanuel Macron, the idea of constitutional assemblies or citizen assemblies um, and of transnationality. Um, Emmanuel Macron took from us, and he told me so some time ago. We, um, we have influenced even the European Investment Bank in some of uh, the discussions that are taking place in there regarding green bonds. Mm -hmm. So, Not bad. Not bad at all. So, our members all work in the investment industry, and I'm interested in your opinion on having now been within the political scene and seen it from an outsider's point of view, but at the same time from within. What do you think about the relationship between politics and the investment industry? Well, it's a crucial relationship. If, if an extraterrestrial were to descend upon us and say, okay, so what, what is the greatest problem that you have? today. Uh, and I had to come up within 30 seconds with an answer and say and pinpoint one thing. The answer would be investment. Mm. We have the lowest level of investment in relation to liquidity and savings in the history of capitalism. Yes. Um, so you only need to state that to realize we have a gigantic problem because, you know, if you are in an African sub-Saharan country in the 1980s and you have very low, low investment, at least you know why you have low investment because there are very there's a, a very small pool of savings from which to invest. Mm. Um, but when you have the, the, the highest percentage of savings in the history of capitalism, and nevertheless, despite that, you have a mountain of money, investment is the lowest it's been, suddenly you realize that this is a political failure. It's a failure of our politics. It's uh, not exactly unprecedented because we had a similar failure after 1929. And that was what gave Franklin Roosevelt the idea of a New Deal. Mm -hmm. And what was the point of the New Deal? To press into the service of humanity through investments excess ca cash. Mm -hmm. 
excess savings. Savings had dwindled during, after the crash in 1929, but investment income negative. So still, yeah, that was a huge problem then, as it is now. Uh, so politics should be chastised for having failed to produce a New Deal kind agenda that will allow the investment community, investors, uh, to, to, to be confident in order to invest. Because the reason why investment is so low is not that investors don't want to invest. They're too scared to invest. Because they, what they, they, they look around and what they see is stagnant demand mm -hmm. for goods and services. So if they thought that investment would be high by everybody else, then they would have every reason to invest because they would anticipate aggregate investment going up, aggregate demand going up, profits. Mm. But we, we are now in a situation where investors are caught up, not in a prisoner's dilemma, not in a free rider problem. Nobody wants to cheat. Nobody wants others to invest when they are not. No, it's a, it, it, it's a co coordination problem, coordination failure. Everybody would like everybody else to invest so that they can invest. Mm -hmm. But everybody's pessimistic that the others would not invest, so they don't invest. And everybody says, see, we were right to be pessimistic. And the result is low level of investment, negative interest rates, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And what about um, the role that society plays in all this? I mean, okay, politics is a reflection, I guess, of our society in some way, but um, have we not demanded as, as a society a system that works for us at large? Um, is, the, is the investment uh, industry structured in a way that is supposed to benefit us as a society? Well, we live in a capitalist world. The main premise since Adam Smith has been that uh, the common interest is served when nobody's trying to serve it and when each is driven by profit-seeking behavior. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the official ideology, if you want, right? Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, Chapter 8. Uh, the question is, is this working for humanity? I don't think it is. And this is not a critique of Adam Smith even, because Adam Smith was very adamant. He had set out the preconditions for uh, this conversion of, as uh, others have um, summarized it, of private vices into public virtues. Yeah. The precondition was firstly that all businesses are small, family-owned, and not limited companies, limited liability companies. In other words, he was talking about a world that doesn't exist today. Okay. Right? <laughs> and secondly, that there should be no externalities. And we live in a world full of externalities. I mean, think of network externalities. The only reason why Facebook is Facebook is because your friends are on Facebook, not because the software is so much better than an alternative. If you and I were to create a better Facebook, it would be useless because our friends wouldn't be in it. So we know that it's not, it's not working as planned. And the reasons why it's not working are already pre-specified in those who made the plan. <laughs> uh, that's why, I'm going back to what I was saying about the 1930s with uh, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal, um, some smart defenders of capitalism, because we have to remember that Roosevelt was not a left-winger, uh, like Keynes was not a left-winger. Uh, you know, th those were bright people who realized that uh, the market is uh, very fragile and uh, has a capacity to fail. And when it fails, it can get stuck in its failure for a very, very long time while society suffers. So this is why I'm saying that politics, society, economics, and finance
uh, are one thing, one magma of interconnectedness. And this is a political failure. Great. Well, not so great. And one last question. Um, obviously, you wrote a lovely book for your daughter. What kind of world do you hope your daughter will live in in 20 years' time? Well, besides all the, the, the standard answers that a, a parent would give, you know, and I would say not the world that I matured in, and particularly not the 1980s and 1990s. In a, in a sense, I'm glad that we are where we are and we're not no longer in the bubble of the 1990s. That crashing ideology of the end of history, where everything was um, plain sailing and we were living in a global village where um, um, politics didn't matter anymore. It was the end of boom and bust, the great moderation, when in reality what was going on was the most immoderate period of explosive economics and politics. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 from an aesthetic and cultural point of view, the tyranny of uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I wish that she doesn't live that way, even if it's a harder life, one of struggle and one of political uh, conflict and one of um, um, discontent. It's better to be looking, to staring at reality and struggling to make the world a better place than to be caught up in that bubble of the 1990s. I wish that her a more interesting life than what I experienced back then. Yanni, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.